but for the next two hours, we're in for a treat. So we've got Walter Jenny, who was from that missing state of ours, the ACT, um, who flew in yesterday and was part of the field visits for some of them. Uh, Walter used to work for the CSIRO, and um, he's a scientist with enormous experience, particularly in soil microbiology and uh, with an enormous amount of uh, research experience behind him, particularly in the role of microbes, specifically symbiotic processes in the ecology of diseases, plant health, nutrient and waste cycling, soil formation processes, and the regeneration of biosystems. He has researched the role of these micro microbial ecologies in forests, agriculture, and the rehydration and regeneration of degraded lands. His work with the organisations Healthy Soil Australia and Regenerate Earth has been focusing on commercialising bio-innovations to help restore agro-ecosystems and urban agriculture to help meet water, food, habitat and carbon sequestration imperatives. He verifies and promotes these innovations to ensure reliable food supply chains for the expanding world population. So he's got big picture and minute eye in his um, vision. I've heard Walter speak a number of times before. He's amazing and we are in for a treat. He's going to use the whiteboard. So awesome, Walter, the floor is yours for two hours. So he will set the scene with explaining what he's going to explain and it will be a, a huge percentage will be open to Q&A. So over to Walter. Right, good morning everybody and thank you very much for being here and it's wonderful to be here with you because I mean obviously it's farmers, it's you, it's a small innovative grassroots farmers which is where in a sense the future is that's the power is, and in a sense, that's the opportunity that we want to go forward with. Just a bit of background, you know, thank you very much, Anne-Marie. I'm basically just a soil microbiologist from down under. And, uh, and really, yeah, look, that's fundamental because it was 420 million years ago. We had ocean, we had rock, hard, dry, bare rock. And basically the ocean, the I mean the organisms, the oceans were running out of nutrients because they were coming from the rock, had to be leached down. And of course they were running out of nutrients, nutrients were a limiting factor, so we need more essential nutrients. Hey, we've got to get onto the rock to solubilise nutrients. So in they do, they send the fungi up from the ocean estuarine edges onto the rock to start solubilising that rock. Okay, but the fungi are like us. They're closer to us than any other living thing. There's a lot of significance in that actually down the track. But anyway, they're, they're closer than us, but they, like us, can't fix sugars. They can't photosynthesize. So what they had to do, they had to call up a mate, blue-green algaes, who can photosynthesize, and said, hey, we've got to get together. You know, there's a beautiful thing, a beautiful future for us, right? <laughs> we'll call it a symbiosis. We don't have to get married. We'll call it a symbiosis. And they formed lichens. Okay, lichens are just fungi and algae symbioses. And of course, then they basically were able to solubilize that rock, but actually they were able to do something more profound. They were able to go AWOL. Because once they had 
sugars, nutrients, water, hay, the world's, the oyster, the land at least. And so very, very rapidly, these lichens solubilized that rock, mixed organic detritus with the mineral detritus, both of which were they were creating. That mineral detritus and organic detritus was able to hold more and more water, building a sponge. And then basically from a lichen, we evolved you know, the liverworts, the mosses, the ferns, the cycads, the gymnosperms, the angiosperms, and then grasses relatively recently. Very rapidly, it was that simple microbiology, that underground of fungi, lichens, solubilizing minerals that then extended the biosystems of vegetation right across the 14 billion hectares of land on this planet. They're not making any more of it. Some will go under sea level rise, so we've got to look after it, but we already all know that. And then, of course, that was the vegetation, but then basically in the Carboniferous and Permian, the massive drawdown of carbon in this vegetation, but then we had massive fires because once you draw down so much carbon, you release a lot of oxygen. Once you get above 25% oxygen in the atmosphere, you go into spontaneous... Thank you very much. You go into sort of basically a combustion, right? Fires. And so that we end up from a carbon drawdown and then we end up in a fire sort of ecology. And basically the earth at the end of the Carboniferous, the Permian extinction really burned itself to death almost. Right? And of course that, nature had to get smart. She, she's very smart. And she then said, hey, we've got to actually start cycling some of this organic matter. So we start needing herbivores. We need to bring animals into this system because the animals can biodigest this organic matter turn it into biofertilizer, dung, and just drive nutrient cycling. And of course, then we had, yeah, insects in the leaves of the trees, and then of course, carnivores, things eating the insects. And of course, we have just evolved from that chain of animals, fauna, living off that same vegetation. Okay, so I just say that briefly to say that, yeah, microbes matter, right? <laughs> And we are, in a sense, just part of that family. So be welcome, be very, very happy. It's very powerful, but also it's very, very empowering for you because these are the tools we can use to go forward. But coming back to the audience and us and here, what we're doing here today, okay, so it's marvelous. Basically, we've got very innovative, creative, young, enthusiastic farmers stepping out and doing it on their own thing, learning, experiencing, experimenting all over. And really that's again this innovative seed of innovation and solutions. And now the challenge is how do we take that innovation, those solutions, that critical mass, that networking, and how do we actually now make this something much bigger? Okay? There are 7.5 billion people on this planet at the moment. They project to have 10 billion people by mid-century, 30 years' time. <coughs> Excuse me. Okay, and of course, like us, they need to eat. Oh, I've, I've got some water. We'll be talking about water all day long, so water's important. 
and not because my name's Walter, but just because it's water. <laughs> but basically, um, yeah, we're going to have 10 billion people by mid-century. Eight billion of those people will be living in these concentrations. We won't call them camps, we'll call them cities. <laughs> and they will all need to eat, fundamentally, because that's one other thing from microbiology. If we don't look after our things properly, it's not that they're going to starve, they're going to go down with pandemics, right? Because if we don't look after our waste and our you know, excrements, we breed pandemics, cholera and pretty ugly things. So basically, we're going to have, yeah, 8 billion people in cities. And it's all about you guys. It's all about urban agriculture. It's all about building food systems. It's all about rebuilding viable ways to keep those biological systems, what that nature gives us, how do we use those to keep that 8 billion people functioning? Now, the big industrial food system, it's worth about $10 trillion a year. And of course, it generates another major industry of $30 trillion a year, which is called the disease industry. Okay, so we've got this major global linear extractive mining system, which we all know, they all know, is completely unsustainable, right? It's not going to get to 10 billion people because we know that. And on the 23rd of September this year, Antonio Guterres, he's a UN Secretary General, he's called a special conference to look at where are grassroots alternative solutions because they know whether it's water, whether it's food, whether it's climate change, whether it's resource depletion, whether it's a social instability that happens immediately once any one of those things starts falling apart. How do we keep this whole thing balanced and in play? And we can't do it by business as usual. There are seven missed meals, and that is all that separates social stability from crisis and chaos. Okay? And so they really, they understand this, but they have no solutions. So the question is, can we go back to the grassroots? Can we go back to the innovators? Can we look for where are those, yeah, those sparks, those little innovations, and how do we learn to put this all together to build a healthy future, to keep life there for those 8 billion, well, the 10 billion? And that's pretty important. And then, of course, not just keep life, but keep healthy life. And as we say, we have a $30 trillion a year global disease industry. And we can't afford that individually or as a community. So how do we get back to what is preventative health? And health comes from food. Now, we, the Greeks knew that. They told us that 3,000 years ago. Let food be thy medicine. Linus Pauling, you know, four Nobel Prizes, etc., 1950s, 90% of preventative health is directly related to the nutritional integrity of the food you eat. And again, how do we get back to healthy preventative communities? It's only through you guys. It's only through rebuilding that nutrient integrity in the food we grow and then supply. 
So enormous opportunities, enormous challenges, but it's all, in a sense, at our feet. And it all comes back to pedogenesis, that little story we started with, you know, those little lichens breaking down soils, pedogenesis, creating soils. Now, we were very fortunate yesterday. We went to see Andy. Where's Andy? Hey, Andy. Okay, we went to see Andy. And, of course, there's Andy doing just that. You see, in the space of three years, 15, 16 crop cycles, he's t turning degraded silts and clays and waterlogged and buggy stuff into beautiful, organic, sustainable soils. Okay, and so yes, we can. We can actually regenerate healthy soils, just as the lichens did. It's a very simple matter. We add carbon. We take carbon from the air, the CO2 from the air, fix it by photosynthesis and by growing plants, that's simple, and put it back into our soil. But of course, it's a very simple thing here. I mean, nature didn't have a lot of tools. She just had sunshine, CO2, water, stardust, and smarts, right? We've got to use the same stuff. But a very simple thing. It's, yes, we can grow plants, we can grow biomass, but what really matters, the really critical thing is, what happens to every gram of biomass we produce? Do we let it oxidise back to CO2? Do we burn it? You know, as we do in our current oxidative industrial system, which is, in a sense, oxidising about 120% of the carbon it fixes? Or do we put a certain percentage of it back into our soils to rebuild the Earth's soil carbon sponge? Rebuild the Earth's soil carbon sponge. That's a, you write it down because that's the key point. As long as we do that, that's our point of empowerment. That's our point of agency. Just taking CO2 from the air, growing plants, but then ensuring it's put back into the sponge. It's not oxidised, but it's not all of it, but a significant part of it is put back into the soil as Andy was doing. Because then in three, four years we can build healthy soils, healthy hydrologies, healthy nutrient dynamics, preventative health, quality food. Okay, so, so that story's there. Um, now you guys all, I mean, there's, there's hours and hours of discussion we can have on all the details and all this stuff, of course. But you guys are pretty well aware of that nutrient cycling, compost, weight recycling. And that's then a key part of it, as Andy was showing us. Yes, we can take compost from mushroom culture or urban organic waste, city to soil, and we can actually return all these nutrients back into our soils to rebuild highly productive systems. We have to do that for the 8 billion because otherwise what we don't recycle safely through those processes ends up as eutrophication, pollution, pandemics, death. Okay, so critically important. So from that side, it's okay, but we're hitting another major imperative now, right? And that's what we want to focus on mostly today. And of course, that's climate change, right? And basically, because we've been degrading the landscape, we've been oxidizing that landscape, you know, that, that 14 billion hectares of green that nature endowed us with 10,000 years ago, 
the start of Holocene or civilization, well, inverted commas, okay, instead of 14 billion hectares of green, we have basically cleared and burnt and oxidized vast amounts of it. We've created 5 billion hectares of man-made desert and wasteland. Okay, we've basically oxidized the guts, the carbon out of half, or half the carbon out of the residual agroecosystems. These are all figures in the UNEP stuff, so you know, we can go into all the verification on all this stuff, no troubles. Okay, but we, we've actually had a massive mining, degrading, oxidative legacy, and we've got to turn that around. But all that carbon we've oxidized out of those biosystem of course, has added to our climate dynamic, uh, dynamics and dilemma, and we've got to turn that around. Every year, 130 billion tonnes of carbon goes into the air globally, and every year our residual biosystems can draw down 120 billion tonnes of carbon. So there's a 250 billion tons of carbon annual flux. Every year we emit about 10 billion tons of carbon, or about 8% of that, as fossil fuel burning. And we've in a sense looked at this climate problem for the last 40 years purely in that perspective of, hey, can we do some marginal token reductions on that 10 billion tons fossil fuel components? You know, can we tinker with the 8% somehow? Delude ourselves that that's going to change it. Well, in fact, we've stuffed up 250 billion tonnes of dynamics, both in terms of emissions and drawdown. We used to draw down, and we didn't, nature did, twice what they do now, what she does now, right? Because we've degraded so many biosystems. So now the question is, can we actually step up listen to nature, respect what she did, and can we actually change that whole carbon dynamic globally? But not just tinkering around with, you know, we're going to have a 5% token emission reduction on our fossil fuel emissions. That's just political bullshit, right? We've got to basically look at how do we regenerate Earth? How do we regenerate these biosystems, this whole carbon dynamic? We stop 50% of the wildfires, both in terms of forests and grasslands. We can save as many carbon emissions as we did if we stopped all fossil fuel burning. And we can do that easily, simply, naturally by fungi biodigesting those fuels into stable soil carbon. Fire versus fungi. Okay, so just get with the strength, go with biology, hey, we can stop that. We can regenerate degraded landscapes. As we said, we've got five billion hectares of man-made desert and wasteland. We can turn that around, and not all of it immediately, it's a hard, hard ask, but basically we can regenerate this wasteland. And if we don't, it's cactus, isn't it? I mean, Syria was a civil war, but it was a civil war created from the aridification, the systemic aridification of the Mediterranean climates. And that's happening whether it's Spain, whether it's Greece, 
whether it's Syria, whether it's the southwest of Western Australia from the 1970s, whether it's the Central Valley in California that's turning into desert and wildfires, or whether it's South Australia. You know, we are systemically aridifying regions, Mediterranean regions at the front line, but right across southern Australia because of this climate degradation. I mean, the droughts, it's not just a drought. You know, it's not just a matter we haven't got enough dams or Barnaby hasn't got on his knees praying to God for rain. You know, my goodness, it's all about what we've done to our landscape. And it's only by regenerating that landscape, rehydrating that landscape, that we've got a hope. Now, the good news is, yes, we can. We can do that elegantly, efficiently, safely, naturally. But basically, it's all up to us because we're, in a sense, innovation, the actual grassroots seeds that need to blossom, let a thousand flowers bloom to actually make this change. Okay, so today I wanted to talk about really that big issue because we're in Wollonga. This has got to stand for something, so Wollonga is all about the actual statement to South Australia, to Australia, to the world. Hey guys, we're going to regenerate, we're going to rehydrate. We can take this climate challenge imperative and we can rehydrate landscapes. Now, we've only got two hours and we could talk for 20 hours and I'm very happy to, you know, like follow through. <laughs> Not, not all at once, I need to drink water. But the, point is that, um, but the point is that, yeah, we can go through all of these things. But I'd like to today just go through and say, look, here are 21 natural ways that nature actually created South Australia's vegetation, this exquisitely efficient system. Here are 21 hydrological processes where we have got our hands on the levers in a way where we can actually make this thing work, rehydrate, regenerate, revegetate, restabilize, make it resilient and healthy again, despite climate change. Not just despite climate change, but basically to buffer and to actually make it, or to avoid climate change in a way. Okay, so what we wanted to talk about is each of those processes but we haven't got time to go into details on them. So I, I was just going to go through some of them, or most of them, and highlight them, just give you a little bit of a brief story on them, and then leave it for Q&A, because it's really what's most relevant to you, where your key questions. But then if we're talking with the organisers, it'd be good to say, look, let's, let's document the fact sheets on each of these as well. And then we can say, look, here is really a lead from the Wollonga discussions on rehydrating lands, regions, states and nations from that sort of point of view. Okay? And so people can look back in 20 years' time and say, hey, why wasn't I at Wollonga? <laughs> okay? And, and the easiest one, and oh, actually a bit of a background, I... Uh, I, I about 17 years ago because I'm old and, um, and then Michael Jeffrey, our former Governor General he retired about, what was it 2009 and so he called us in and said, hey can you help me 
and we worked very closely with he, him and then Soars for Life, the, you know, the group that he's established. And we've held, held enormous amounts of briefings and discussions and because of Michael's influence, yeah, you can go right to the top, you know, talk to prime ministers and stuff. And we do, we do. But the point is that it's only talk, right? And so what matters is not talk the talk and them saying, oh, Michael, doing a great job, keep it up, and we'll just keep on status quo. You see, it's a case of how do we now empower grassroots farmer community grassroots action. Okay, and so the whole thing starts with, in a sense, the hundred drops. And of course, there's a raindrop. And really what matters is not how much rain we get, because for the short period we'll come back, we'll give you more rain at the end of this cycle, but at the moment, what really matters is the hundred drops and what happens to every one of those hundred drops. Okay? Because it's actually, you know, our smart, wise management of those hundred drops that counts. And what happens at the moment if we have a hundred drops, two of them percent or two drops fall onto water, 98% fall onto soil, 12% make it into streams, 2% can get stored in dams. Okay? And so basically what we're looking at with all our Murray-Darling Basin and all our water engineering mentality is we have water in dams. So then that's fantastic. We can have an almighty bitch about who gets what slice of 2%. <laughs> and it's from that 2%, of course, that we have to get you know, 70% to irrigated agriculture. You know, we've got 20-odd percent going to industrial processes, largely energy, you know, because our energy sector, power generation, mining and stuff, takes enormous amounts of energy. And then there's about 10% of that 2%, which is, in a sense, our domestic water, right? Okay? And so when you look at those figures, yeah, we're here talking about those 2%, and of course you've got Canava and people like that saying, hey, we need more dams, you know, we need more dams. But of course, we're missing the big picture. And see, what really the story is, what happens to this 98, yeah, sure, 12 goes there too, but in a sense there's 86% of that water, we have to ask what happens to that? And of course, what really happens, yeah, about 30% is used by green transpiration and about 56% runs off. And of course it runs off and then it evaporates off or otherwise it runs over the dams and floods out. Okay? And so it's this 56% that is in a sense, yeah, 25 times. <coughs> plus or minus, and it depends a little bit where you are and what season, it's 25 times what we've got in our dams. And it avoids a lots of bitching, right? Because if we can use that 56% more wisely, then, you know, there's some real potentials. And of course, this is, whether it's, I mean, this is, these are national data. Again, we'll give you all the stuff. It's Australian Academy of Science. It's, it's all there. 
all the Murray Darling Basin, you know, because that was what the whole thing we were briefing government about. Look, this is the Murray Darling Basin, and you guys at the end of it here in South Australia, you know all about it. But basically, it's that 56 drops out of 100 that's there. And of course, what we do, if we can put that into the sponge, if we can put that into the Earth's soil carbon sponge, then we're in, we're in a sense in a completely new world. And of course, that's exactly what happened. If we go back to basically Bruce Pascoe, Bill Gamage, or all the indigenous knowledge, or Oxley, or Mitchell, or all those initial explorers. They went through this country, Australia Felix, and they were complaining. Oxley was complaining because he was walking through mould. Mould. And it would be wet. And his horses would sink into their fetlocks every step into this, this wet soft mould. It's hard going. He wanted to get out of the Liverpool Plains in New South Wales because it was just so slow soft in this soft, sticky mould. Okay? Because it was all a sponge. And Australia previously, instead of all this water running off, 6% of the water ran off. And that's why Flinders couldn't find the mouth of the Murray River. Okay, because even as you fly over it now, it's just a little break in the sand dunes, right? Because all that water was used in the landscape, because the driest inhabited continent of Earth had evolved this exquisitely efficient conservation process for every one of those 100 raindrops. Some of this, of course, then went into transpiration. Others of it recharged then the aquifers. Okay, so that's the next story. It's the sponge. We'll write it in a different colour because the sponge might stick out. But this is our in-soil reservoirs, right? And it's in a sense those deep, soft, spongy soils and sometimes they go down to 10 metres or more and it's their capacity to hold water enormous quantities of water, protected from evaporation, available to deep roots, and mulga and spinifex, they have roots going down to 50 metres, right? So it's the capacity <coughs> of our in-soil reservoirs to hold that water, to supply that water slowly and efficiently. We put a, pro a proposal back to the, the government for Northern Australia, you know, when uh, Andrew Robb was all champion Northern Australia, we could regenerate 300 million hectares of Northern Australia grazing ecology, fire ecology. <coughs> we could put that carbon back into the soil. That would give us one million gigalitres of extra water in our in-soil reservoirs. That's equivalent to 100 Lake Argyles. Lake Argyle's got about 10,000 gigalitres. Hume, Hume Weir or Dartmouth has got about 4,000 gigalitres, right? But this would be equivalent to 100 Lake Argyles 
distributed across the Australian landscape, providing water when and where needed, free from evaporation. Okay, so the in-soil reservoirs very, very important. But they're really more important than just a physical thing because what the in-soil reservoirs done in the natural vegetation, and this is again, write it down, they've given you the longevity of green. Okay, the length at which green can function. You know, if you've got a degraded soil, you get a storm, you get some soil water, most of it's run off, you've got 10 days of green growth, and then it's dry again. Okay? But if you've got a sponge and you've got your in-soil reservoirs, then you don't have just 10 days of green growth, you might have 200 days or 100 days of green growth. You are now talking in thousands of percent green productivity increase, longevity of green. I mean, I worked in Syro, like if we could get a 30% growth response, we'd put on a clean lab coat, get a clipboard and queue up for a Nobel Prize. And here's a thousand percent in soil reservoirs, rebuilding your sponge. Okay, so, so really very simple, logical processes by which nature actually sort of rehydrated this country and basically, I mean, here we are in South Australia, the driest state in this driest inhabited continent, you know, up north, a hundred millimetres of annum rainfall, but it's a green desert. It's a paradox. Can't be possible. Hey, yeah, what's all that? Oh, get rid of all that spinifex and mulga and saltbush and stuff. It's not supposed to be there. It's supposed to be a desert. It's only got 100 millimetres. But no, it's got roots. It's got in-soil reservoirs. It's got sponge. It's got other tricks up its sleeve as well. But what I'm saying is we can use those tricks. We can use those, those innovations, that smart, natural thing. <coughs> Excuse me again. Okay, so, but this is only the soil. Now let's come to the, to the life on it. You see, because we talked about mulga, we then say here is a shelter wood, right? Here is a canopy of trees that actually stop desiccation, stop wind speed, speed surface wind speed, massively reduce the scouring and the surface evaporation from that landscape. Okay, so all we do is say, how do we integrate a natural agroecology. Now we're talking your stuff, isn't it? How do we integrate a natural agroforestry agroecology into that ecosystem to stop that desiccation, wind speed scouring? You see, and, and it's all there. We don't even just stop desiccation, we might even have deep nutrient pumps bringing up nutrients from subsoils and then cycling them into the organic surfaces as a bonus. Okay. How do we get deep roots into these insoil reservoirs? Because these insoil reservoirs go as deep as our root system can get, get to them. And as we said, like we've got mulga and spinifex, very, very deep roots. Okay? And so it's very much how do we regenerate agroecosystems with the sponge, insoil reservoirs, deep roots, shelterwood trees. And then there's another thing that comes on top of that. And again, it's a big topic and blow your mind. 
But basically, 98% of plants in nature, of course, can't survive as plants. They survive as symbionts, just as the algae needed the fungi, these plants need the fungal, their fungal symbionts. They're called mycorrhizal fungi. For those of you sitting down, hold on to something, or who aren't sitting down, hold on to something. 25,000 kilometers of mycorrhizal hyphae per cubic meter of healthy soils. Twice the diameter of the earth per cubic meter. Hyphae are simple membrane tubes interfacing intimately with all those mineral and organic surfaces inside that soil. Selectively, intelligently absorbing nutrients according to the needs of the fungi and the plants. And of course the plants are feeding them with sugars. But it's that interface of fungal hyphae with that soil that also can take up water from that soil. And it can take up water from that soil at way, way below the wilting point of trees. Okay, so when a tree has long ago, or just a tree by itself, a seedling from a nursery, long ago died because it's hit the wilting point, it's these fungi that are still absorbing moisture from these films, these microfilms. Of course, they're not driving transpiration with that. They're not just driving growth, but it's survival, right? It's survival. And this is all about resilience and survival. This is about South Australia. It's about how nature functions, right? So this microbial interface and accessing water, profoundly efficient. But that microbial interface doesn't access water. It also basically uses carbon in the soil. And we know from our first year chemistry, um, to make a gram of organic matter or carbohydrate, you know, CO2 plus six grams of water make one gram of carbohydrate, right? Plus oxygen as a waste product. That's photosynthesis. And we know that when we break down a gram of carbohydrate or break down a gram of organic matter in the soil, we can't avoid generating six grams of water. It's like gravity, it's, you know, it's, yeah, you can't avoid it. Sorry, Charlie, you're on the wrong earth. Okay? For every gram of organic matter that you have in the soil, that then these microbes slowly break down, they generate six grams of water. And that's important. Because when you've got no water, you've got no life. But if you've got organic matter, you've got actually a multiplied store of water times six. Okay? And so for survival, again, critically important. So these sponges, we create the sponge because we're, you know, basically putting carbon into the soil, but effectively also storing biochemical water times six. And that's survival water. Streslecki, 1842, he was sent out from uh, Governor Darling, I think it was. Look, I might be Burke or Darling. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Who cares? But the point is, he was sent out and to sort of look at the agricultural potential of Australia's land because the squatters were itching to take more, right? And basically, he went from Sydney right down through to uh, Portland and then into Tasmania. You know, taking soil samples, sent them up to England to get analysed. His highest organic 
matter contents in the samples, this is Q, so he wasn't fudging the figures, this was fact, 37.5% organic matter. 37, I mean, this is the moulds, right? And even the poorest soils that he had, you know, he had about 40 samples that he sent across on a sailing ship, and even the poorest samples, you know, had sort of 6 to 8% organic matter. Okay, so the amount of water holding capacity in those soils, you know, in terms of biochemicals and mets. There's another story here. One gram of organic matter holds about four grams of water just in the sponge, you know, just in the interstice of that organic matter as a sponge. So one gram of carbon, which is about 50% organic matter, holds eight grams of water potentially, right, in a soil. But see, it doesn't exist just passively. Basically, that organic matter cements together mineral particles and creates a whole soft, spongy <coughs> cathedral voids in that soil. So you've got these massive interchanging voids in the soil. You know, you go from a bulk density of 3.5, 2.6 to 3.5, which is like solid rock, and then a healthy soil has a bulk density of about 1.1, 1.2. That means 66% of the volume of that soil is air, is voids, is space, is cathedrals. I mean, not now, Notre Dame is burnt, sadly, but the point is that when you go to Notre Dame, you don't look at the rocks or the bricks that it's made out of, you don't look at the cement that's made out, you get marvel at the voids, at the spaces. And so it is in soil. It's a, the cathedral of voids inside the soil. And it's those voids that can hold up to 20 grams of water for every gram of carbon you put into the soil. Okay? Because these are the voids, this is where your in-soil reservoir water can be stored. So enormously valuable, importantly, having you know, this carbon in the soil because that carbon gives you water in each of these forms, directly in its sponge, in its voids, and in its biochemical water. Okay, so in South Australia, I mean, so here's actually the soil carbon story water, but this goes bigger, it's always bigger. The next story is that we've got basically um, the capacity to harvest water from the air. Again, we don't know, we see water in the oceans and in dams and rivers, you know, we don't see it in soils because that's underground, but we also don't see the water that's in the air from 2 to 5% of the air is made up of water. It varies from place to place, time to time, but 2 to 5%. So every square centimetre of soil surface, Earth's surface, has up to 50 centimetres of water sitting above it in the air. Okay? 25 times water in the air. And the only thing is we've just got to get it down from the air into our soils. That water is flowing continually. We've got rivers of water flowing across every desert in the world continually. But the issue is how do we harvest it? How do we get it down? And again, we don't want to go into the details here now because we haven't got time, but, but there's a lot of atmospheric physics involved. But basically plants harvest that water. So up to one to two millimetres a night of that water can get harvested as dew and fogs 
on some plants. And some of our desert plants are exquisitely efficient at harvesting that water from the air. So our casuarina cristata, you know, desert oaks and what have you, absolutely exquisite. Your tamarisks, asphalt pine, it's a weed, get rid of it. No, no, it's harvesting water. Your salt bushes, right? Salt is a hygroscopic material. Hygroscopic means it sucks, right? It sucks water. And how much water is your, are your salt bushes harvesting every night from the humid air? Okay, and so what can we do? Well, look, you know, we've got the trials, we've got the data. Yeah, we can do one litre per square metre per night. Okay, and that's not a lot of water, of course, to, to drive a hydroelectric plant or whatever, but hey, if you're talking about survival of plants in arid zones, it, it's powerful. Okay, so there's a whole lot of these hydrological smarts that nature has evolved, and in a sense, they're for us, if we wish to, use and utilise and design agroecosystems as well to rehydrate our landscapes. There's another whole series, and again, I don't want to take too much time because I want a Q&A as well. There's another whole um, area where we come into more the whole cloud or the whole cooling of the atmosphere, cloud um, cooling, latent heat flux cooling, where again, as we revegetate our landscapes, we are actually putting more water into the air through the transpiration, but that water can be actually reharvested, And we do that, again, hygroscopically. You know, we talked about the salts being hygroscopically, and in Syro we used, again, hygroscopic salts, silver iodide, when we were doing all that cloud seeding work in the 60s and 70s. So, again, it's just nucleating clouds to create, you know, hygroscopic rain droplets to rain out from the clouds. But nature does that as well, right? And so basically all that water that transpires will get hygroscopically nucleated and basically form dense clouds which have a massive cooling effect and then raindrops which of course replenish the sponge. In terms of the global climate, I mean, coming back now to the climate story, I'm sorry if this overlaps, coming back to the climate, you see, we've been always just focused on, hey, we've got to stop the CO2. Well, I'm sorry, we can't stop the climate with CO2. It's far too little, it's far too late. It's just not able to. Nature didn't use CO2 to cool the climate. Nature used water to cool the climate. 95% of the Earth's heat dynamics is driven by water. And it's this exquisitely effective hydrological processes that naturally cool the planet. Okay, there's, uh, again, no, I don't want to go into detail, but there's 342 watts of energy, solar energy coming in. 342 watts has to go back out to keep a stable climate. Our whole abnormal greenhouse has caused 3 watts per square metre, or less than 1%, to be retained by the Earth. And that's, in a sense, the 1% that we have to rebalance, which we can do, but just as nature, we can do that by increasing transpiration. Because as we increase the longevity of green and the amount of green, basically, 
every gram of water that transpires has to go from liquid to the gas phase. That takes 590 calories of energy from the surface to cool the surface to turn that liquid into gas. And that's, in a sense, 24% of the Earth's natural global cooling process. Okay, so 4% increase in transpiration in green, equivalent to cooling that 3 watts per square meter. Okay? So just turn on the green, and we 4%, and we should be out of balance. It's not quite that simple. There's a whole lot of interactions. <laughs> okay? But do you understand in terms of magnitude? Clouds cover 50% of the planet at any one time, and they reflect, directly reflect, you know, 36% of so incident solar radiation back out to space. Okay? So as we have to cool the planet 1% of that incident solar radiation, theoretically a 1% to 2% increase in cloudiness. Longevity, density, albedo effect will safely, naturally cool the planet. And yes, we can increase that cloudiness. Why? How? Well, we put in more water, more green, more transpiration, and more hygroscopic nuclei to turn humid hazes into dense high albedo clouds. Okay, so, I mean, we've been talking at the farmer level of how do we actually increase our soil sponge, in-soil reservoirs, water capture, but the same process if we now take it at a planetary level is the only way we can safely naturally cool this planet. But we can go into more the science and physics of it in Q&A if you're interested. And the same goes with rainfall. Just as we basically use silver iodide to successfully cloud seed and induce increased rainfall by up to 30%, and we're still doing it in Tasmania, we're still doing it in China, in Israel, in America. We don't publish it because we're not allowed to anymore because in 1976, after Vietnam, we agreed we wouldn't, wouldn't use, have metrological warfare, right? So things aren't published anymore, but people are still doing it, of course. But the point is that, um, yes, we can actually restore these rainfalls, right? Uh, it's, again, another bigger thing. Again, atmospheric physics, don't want to get into diva, but we've got a thing called biotic pumps. If we have dry, barren land that heats up, it re-radiates massive amounts of heat back up into the air and it creates high-pressure heat domes. And so, in a sense, these high-pressure heat domes over dry, barren, hot land will prevent cool, moist, low-pressure air flowing into that region, onto that continent. So deserts are self-reinforcing, right? You create a desert, you heat that land, you put a high-pressure heat dome over it, and you're buggered, you know, you've got a desert. Okay? And, and basically, we've got these cool, moist airflows, these biotic pumps, and by growing vegetation, we can actually create low-pressure regions and we can actually restore the inflow of this marine air, marine moist air. And why the Amazon has stayed cooler and why the Amazon is moister, because always, continually, it gets a 
inflow of cool, moist, low-pressure air from the Atlantic Ocean right across that forest all the way to the Andes to actually drive that whole hydrology. So there's other parts of the Earth that are just the same latitude and topography, but because they have destroyed their forest, they're desert instead of an Amazon rainforest. Okay, so these are biotic pump effects. And perhaps to close the thing, this part of the discussion before Q&A, see, I really want to go back to, in a sense, we started this morning with um, caring for country and, and basically that, because in a sense, our indigenous people knew this. And if we go back to Central Australia and Papunya and those original elders that came out of the desert, they wrote their story as stormwater dreaming. And they were the custodians of the monsoon, the Australian monsoon. Okay, and the central Australian ranges, they're about 5,000 feet to oh no, 2,000 metres. And basically they were, in a sense, a, a, again, a, habit, a vegetated, um, yeah, biotic pump sink. And the Fink, the Todd, the Sandover, all those rivers then fed into the lake air from that monsoonal um, biotic pump sink. And the Australian Museum's done all the studies, they've gone to Lake Eyre, and basically in the sand dunes around Lake Eyre, 20 feet, 25 metres above base level, they find freshwater mussel shells. And then, of course, they date those freshwater mussel sh shells, and yes, yeah, six to 8,000 years old. And so essentially Lake Eyre 6, 6 to 8,000 years ago was a freshwater lake, 20 metres deep or so, fluctuating of course, fed by the Australian monsoon. And now the monsoon is very much restricted up into Arnhem Land and dropping seasonally. And of course before we did have the monsoon coming right into central Australia because it was vegetated. And the elders' dreaming is all about how do they manage their land, how do they care for country, how do they manage their vegetation to look after the monsoon, the rainbow serpent. And it's, have we angered our rainbow serpent to stop the monsoon? That's the big dilemma. So what relation is there with land management and this monsoon and rehydrating this nation? So no one's going to say we can do that like that, but the fact is nature did. Up as recently as 6,000 years ago. And so the question is, can we listen? Can we learn? Can we work with communities? Can we rebuild these natural ecological biosystems? And yeah, in that, can we regenerate, rehydrate them and secure our safe future? But look, thank you very much. And then let's sort of have Q&As because I imagine there's a whole lot of furfies or questions or, you know, curiosities that might come. But as we said, we'd also like to, we'd also like to sort of, in a sense, from your Q&As and this thing, document these and say, look, here are at least those introductory fact sheets and stories, narratives on each of these processes of naturally rehydrating country, naturally regenerating earth. Thank you.
But yeah, look, um, no, no, please, any questions? I'm very happy. Gentleman down. Uh, so, Walter, my name's Ray. I'm um, a farmer from uh, beautiful and Campbell um, country in southern Queensland. And so, until a couple of years ago, I had a very um, negative view towards fire in the landscape. Yep. And then I read Bruce Pascoe yep. and Bill Gamage's work. Yep. And more recently, I've had the good fortune to learn about Indigenous fire management from a yep. uh, couple of men in North Queensland. And so the way that Indigenous people essentially turn grass into charcoal... Mold, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, not even... Well, yeah, no, I'm with you. I'm with yeah, you. Yeah, so yeah, charcoal it's like grass. Yep. Uh, well, what are your thoughts of that as far as its contribution to... Yeah, uh, soil. Very, very much. It, it all comes together. Um, comes back to Tim Flannery's stuff a little bit as well. Okay, we used to have megafauna in this country as grazers, and of course the whole thing evolved with those megafauna, and they were just like mobile alimentary canals, basically, right? They're very low nutritious stuff. They ate monstrous quantities of it. Got very a bit like a wombat, you know. Got very little from it couldn't even support a decent-sized brain to feed off it because that needs nutrients, right? And just excreted a lot, right? <laughs> and that was, in a sense, yeah, the biodigestion of that fire fuel. The last megafauna, we were at Burra in South Australia again, and the last fossil megafauna was 5,000 years. But, you know, just say 15,000 to 5,000 years, they went out. And when they went out, basically fuel levels, scrub, brush, must have increased enormously, right? And so no people could survive on this country in those wildfire conditions, right? Just all barbecue, right? It's just yeah, <laughs> another prawn on the barbie. Okay? And so very, very rapidly, our indigenous people had to get very smart and say, hey, we've got to manage this fuel to manage this fire risk. And of course, they went into this very sophisticated mosaic, cool burning pattern. And when you cool burn, absolutely, as Bruce and stuff like says, no, no, you're just burning the dry grass off the surface. You get very little heat penetration. You're not oxidizing the soil at all. And you're building up exactly use charcoal or, you know, you're building well, no, charcoal, it's just mold. It's just, you know, that carbon dust, right, from the burned grass. And you're building mold, 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 right? And, and definitely that was the unique characteristic of Australian soils. And so fire isn't just fire, there's different types of fires. So this is very sophisticated mosaic burning. The women, mostly were done by women because they'd be digging for yam daisies, digging over the field, and then before they left, they'd clean up that patch, you know, it might be 70 metres diameter sort of thing, right? And just clean it up because then that ash bed fire was the basis of re-sprouting yams for the next time they were coming in six months' time, right? So they were actually cultivating, as Bruce sort of talks about, cultivating land in that way. Totally different fires from what we now do, where we have 30, 40 tonnes per hectare of fuel, gamba grass and what have you, and we burn the crap out of the country, right? And it oxidises that whole soil. So, yeah, we've got to learn fire, but we've got to have that same sophistication and sensitivity and listening to the indigenous people, listening to nature to use it wisely. But very important question. And so 
Again, there's no blueprints, prescriptions, you've got to do this. It's really talking to each community, each region. A lot depends on when to burn. If the soil's too dry, you don't burn. But when there's moisture and it's been dry for four days, I can burn that grass without hurting the soil one little bit. The, the, the biological interaction, so when, when that grass, the, the top section is burned, yeah. the, the carbon that is, is left over then is non-labile carbon, yes, which is biologically relatively inert. What's yep. Yeah, well, look, I mean, basically, yes, it's relatively inert. It's non-labile. It's gone into sort of a charcoal thing, yep, and that helps build that mould or that sponge, right? Um, yeah, so, so it's relatively inert. I mean, carbon, it's, again, like everything in life, it's all dynamic, but, yeah, it's long-lived. Uh, the humates, the glomalin, this sort of carbon, 100 years to 1,000 years longevity in soil, depending on conditions, you know, so it's all basically takes time. I mean, the only one that's got really stable carbon is those guys in the Kimberleys who are farming diamonds, uncut diamonds. Um, well, just a comment on uh, introduced perennial grasses. People, farmers in organic systems, uh, not so much on grazing with other systems. Should we be concerned about them, or how do you think... Okay. Uh, introduced perennial grasses, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, look, I mean, again, it's, it's horses for courses, and basically nature has solved problems using exquisite range of different biological tools, right? So before we get, you know, too didactic or, or puritanical about things, we really have to say, what is that plant doing there, right? And, and so is it doing some harm? And, okay, is it doing some harm? And if so, why? Um, and, and we've got to really just step back and listen and look at the ecology. Uh, I mean, let's extend that discussion a little bit to weeds, right? Because this, you're saying, is this a potential weed? And see, look, a weed is simply a plant that doesn't fit our dogma, right? And, and the point is that weed is there because it's got a competitive advantage to be there, which means there's a niche that we've created in that system that that plant can prosper in, but by growing there, it's doing good. Because if it wasn't there, yeah, it'd be dead, right? And by growing there, it is changing that site. It, it can't grow there and not change that site, right? Because it's putting car, it's growing, it's therefore it's changing things. And by changing things, it's making room for the succession of other things to take over. So weeds are simply those pioneers that are setting up successions for regeneration and improvement. Because we, because of dogma, label them as weeds, we then kill them with all sorts of biocides and energy and what have you, and we constantly recreate the conditions that give them an advantage. And they beat us, of course, and we get cranky at them, right? <laughs> we, need some, we need more muscle power, right? We need a stronger uh, toxin. But even that, we lose because we kill ourselves and the weed's still smiling. <laughs> okay? And, and so, so again, the story is, look, I don't know of one plant on this planet that has taken over the planet. Whether it's a perennial grass or weed. Every plant has created an ecology 
which then creates the ecology for other plants to succeed it, and everything moves up, 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 carbon drawdown, water retention, nutrient dynamics, increasing health, increasing productivity, increasing resilience. So before we throw a time bomb into this or blow it up, we really want to think carefully. Now, I'm not saying that we've got to love every plant, in wrong plant in the wrong place, yeah. Um, ecology, again, has a solution. If you can't beat it, if you can't beat it, you eat it. <laughs> you just drop the bee. You just drop the bee, you eat it. Or get somebody else to eat it, right? Okay, and Bill Mollison, for example, hey, you like, I mean, I knew Bill well back in the mid-70s in Tasmania, right? But the point is that, yeah, look, you haven't got a, you know, you haven't got a snail problem, you've just got a shortage of duck problem, right? You see, and so it's always, where, is the, where does nature solve, how does nature solve this, how do we just tweak the system, like, like bullfighting, let the thing storm past and give it a Christmas card on the way through. Just wondering, I feel like I'm a market gardener, I feel like we've got a bit of a handle on how to manage carbon, for example, adding compost. Um, but one of, one of the big questions for me is how to manage water and how to irrigate efficiently and to provide for that kind of, um, you know, the cathedrals with the air and the yep, water. Yep. Into the so what, what kind of tools can, can small-scale growers yep. access or use to help us manage water? No, look, this is, thank you so much. Fantastic, and of course the answer is yes. He's got bore water, high quality bore water, secure bore water, and touch water. Everything goes well, and he's using very efficient trickle irrigation to feed that water, and so looks all good. But no question whatsoever, this whole capacity to feed the 10 billion will depend on water. Mark Twain said it: whiskey you drink, water you fight over, right? And we we are we are in a world of water shortages. This year, this summer, this June, and we're still in June, 40% reduction in the Indian monsoon so far. There's vast numbers of farmers that have abandoned their farms in the northwest of India, Rajasthan and what have you, because their wells that they relied on for hundreds and hundreds of years are now so low, 200 metres down, so all they're getting septic, arsenic, fluoride, contaminated water that... If they drink, if they give it to the kids, the kids' bones fall apart. So it's got to the... And they've just depopulated vast areas of agricultural lands, gone back into the slum or gone into the slums of Mumbai. OK, so we're really serious. And so for market gardening, for the future, we have to find smart water use efficiencies. And there's exquisite ways, and I would think and this is in a sense where you're all at because you're the pioneer, you're the innovators these are the things that we have to do and what we're developing and this is also for arid zone regeneration areas are these wicking bags and wicking beds right? now what it is is simply it's just a container and what we're saying the bottom layer we just sort of say look we create a water reservoir and 
what we do, we just take you know Coca-Cola, plastic Coca-Cola bottles because they're a waste product. We just slide them down, and then on top of that, I mean, of course, there's a plastic membrane there. That's our wicking layer, and then of course, this is our soil layer here. Okay, so we create our own in-soil reservoir in our contained uh, bag, right? So we were just creating an in-soil reservoir. So we just have 10 centimetres or 20 centimetres of water there. This is just a metre of soil there. And in a sense, yeah, there's our water store. We have a pipe that goes into that in-soil reservoir and all our irrigation is down the pipe. Up here, we have mulch. So, yep, we don't get any, you know, we're not watering the surface because that's where you grow your weeds. All the watering is from below, and so your plant has to have deep roots, right? Because the only way it's going to get water is from this deep root. Actually, here you can put a plant pot that also is filled with soil, and that is actually acting as a wick, you know? But, I mean, at the end of the day, the roots are going to cannibalize that water anyway. But to start off, we've got that soil wick. Okay, and so you've got a very close, you've almost got a, a life raft to grow your plants. Now, I've drawn a pot, but you can draw that as a longer, you know, a, a trench. But when we look at the figures, and you've done some of this in Saira, you see, it's really important because at the moment, because you don't have this contained thing, basically 60%, sorry, 60, 60% of the water that you put on is obviously leaching or could be leaching out into groundwater or worse still because I work for trees we've got all these tree roots and these tree fungi and basically they're in there cannibalizing the water that you need for your nursery bed big time right so <coughs> so your chance of getting your nutrients and your water that you're putting onto your Nursery crop is, you know, you've got buckleys if you're growing at anywhere near trees because these tree roots and these 25,000 kilometres of fungal hyphae, they're in there having Christmas pudding, right? And so this is why you're saying, okay, can I isolate that nursery in its own soil, in its own in-soil reservoir, deep roots, and then can I feed the water in there not to allow it to evaporate. And so I think we're going to see that sort of smarts, particularly in more arid, water-stressed areas, becoming a fundamental thing. This is extremely important, though, for that urban agriculture system because now we have created sovereign soil. Okay? We have now a pot or container and we can take waste subsoil with organic matter. We make our own soil. So we're no longer subject to the landlord on our soil. We have created our own soil sovereignty. Okay? You can put this on casters. You can take it with you. Okay? But this is very important because, for example, okay, here's a bigger story. 80% of the food that people eat globally doesn't come from industry, it comes from gardens, from small farmers, mainly women, growing crops to feed their children, our children. 80% of that food. And women have less than 5% of 
of the land ownership. So they mostly have a greasy uncle standing on top of them, extorting them for basically using their land for X percentage, right? I don't know if I'm... My language is getting a bit bad. <laughs> but, but do you understand? And this is, food, this is soil sovereignty, because if we want food sovereignty, if we want you know, integrity here, hey, we can create autonomous, independent, sovereign soils, farming systems, gardening systems. We can empower people to grow and make their decisions. And so these things, I mean, you can have them at different scale. So, but look, urban courtyards, urban, you know, urban agriculture, balconies, uh, um, nature's, uh, nature, you know, like the nature strips, you know, uh, parks. We can use these everywhere because we're actually now no longer dependent on, hey, we've got to try and grow cabbages under those oak trees. No, you can't. The oak trees are going to eat the cabbages. But now I can put these beds under the cabbage trees so I can integrate urban shelter woods, urban forests with agriculture in a very exquisite, efficient way. So it's a very powerful thing. But these are the sort of innovations driven by our need to conserve water that I think are enormously exciting. And quite frankly, um, yeah, I, I see... Oh, well, OK, look, okay, just give you what we're doing. We've got interest from deserts, right? People in deserts with, yeah, lots of money and no, no vegetation at all. And how do they revegetate those deserts? Well, you can't plant a seedling there. It got, hasn't got a chance. But we can put these things there, right? Because then we've got independent, autonomous, resilient life rafts. And if we put clusters of these life rafts, we create a microhabitat. And from that microhabitat, we can have an oasis. Next question. Can you talk to me a little bit more about the creation of that oasis? Yeah, well, look, it's, no, no, very good. Uh, no, no. So it's very so you can understand how this sort of as a unit yes. is more resilient. Right? And so okay, if we got a desert and it's 45 degrees centigrade and you know, no water, yes. and so you put a seedling in there. And Costas will tell you, we've got a chance. No, I get that. We've got no chance, right? Death. And the only thing is now, if we sort of say, look, we're going to put a cluster of, to say, 20 wicking beds, each with their shelterwood tree four metres high, each of which, and then we'll backfill this with soil and mulch, right? Ah, yes. See, now we've created a micro-climate, micro-environment, haven't we? We've got shelter. These things are going to grow out the side because we can slip the side of these bags and they're going to start colonising. But they can colonise quite because they're colonising from this, this sort of core resource. And so, we, yes, we can keep that, we can have a green, healthy oasis shelter in a desert and colonise and succeed from there. And then from there we say, yeah, look, let's have these different colonising ground creeper creep, uh, plants, grasses, etc. Yeah. Um, tell us a bit more about your experience with biochar as a means of speeding up the process. Of right. Right. Carbon and creating the, the cathedrals or hotels in the soil for the yep. process yep. to accelerate. Right. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Lockie. Um, 
Look, biochar, a bit like this story here with fire before, not knocking it, but the answer is, again, you know, yeah, nature uses biochar sometimes, but most of the time, no, no, it feeds it to fungi to make compost to make, you know? So basically, what's the advantage of biochar compared to composting it, right? So you've got to ask that because with biochar, I've got to sort of harvest it, I've got to sort of put it through a pyrolysis plant. I've got to then sort of basically redistribute it. It also depends what I do with all the carbon gases from the pyrolysis plant, right? And then basically, yeah, what, what value is it relative to if I take in the same biomass and basically just use fungi in situ to compost it, right? So that's, that's a big question. Um, Biochar, yeah, as, as we said, is an inert carbon. Yeah, it's there for a thousand years plus, right? Uh, yes, we can feed it to animals. I mean, biochar is itself just a carbon matrix. There's no nutritional value, mostly. But if we feed it to animals, then basically they, you know, they basically excrete it as part of their excreta, and then it can actually come in a very useful bio-fertilized, you know, bio-fertilized reinforced form. But, but so, so in a sense, unless there's compelling reasons that people said, look, I need biochar in these contexts, um, that has to be the compelling case rather than biochar as a dogma, right? And certainly not vis-a-vis -vis compost. But it's horses for courses. But let me tell you, um, I, I used to work with government, of course, and we used to fund a lot of innovation programs. And, oh, was it 20 years ago now, um, we funded a beautiful thing in Narogen in Western Australia called Mali Alley, Eucalypt Biochar Farming. And this is wheat country, and so basically these farmers would grow Mali eucalypts in windrows, right? And they'd grow wheat between. And basically then the idea was to harvest those Mali eucalypts every five years. And of course you just cut them off, they would regrow as coppers because they're Mali's. And then, of course, you'd take the eucalypt leaves and you'd extract eucalypt oil. And then, of course, you would have then the leaf residue for after the oil, you could make compost. Then you would take the timber and you would put that through a pyrolysis plant. Right? And that was just a, a yeah, heating, I mean, you're heating at about 600 degrees of pressure and stuff. And you would actually end up with activated carbon. And actually that's biochar, but in a much, much purer, refined, and of course industrially valuable form. Very valuable, in fact, because then you use that activated char carbon as filters for liquid pollutions, either from water or whatever, you know, decontaminate that water, or air filters, right? So all that sick air buildings thing, you could say, look, I've got activated carbon filters, and I'm taking out toxins from the air, and then I could take those activated carbon filters with contaminants in them and I could actually compost them and get the bugs to, you know, basically clean up the toxins because they're just nutrients in the wrong form. You know, cyanide is just carbon and nitrogen, right? So it's toxic, but carbon and nitrogen are both neutral. So just break it up and you're, you're happy. Okay, and so very, very interesting and also very empowering because that allowed that Narogen community, and we did all the work, we put a couple more, about $10 million into this, and, and basically 
um, yeah, that, that, that community was then energy autonomous, right? It had its own energy because this was generating energy from the syngas, activated carbon, another big economic stimulus for the region as a business, eucalypt oil as a business, Mali Ali, soil conservation as a business. So it was really looking good. But of course, um, it wasn't the status quo because Western Power that was funding or co, you know, they were the industry sponsor in this or the industry partner. And they said, hey, my goodness, if every country town in Australia wanted to go to Mali Alley Eucalypts, we wouldn't be selling them power anymore. You know, what's the point of a central coal-fired power system if everyone's getting their autonomous independent power? So then they said, hey, this experiment is exciting, but it's killing our business model, which is to sell power to customers. So let's just shelve the project, right? But I'm telling you because you can pick it up, Lockie, and then make a million, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Working on that conspiracy theory. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I'm, I'm a microbiologist, mate. I, I just recycle <laughs> things, right? <laughs> Working on the same one, is that the same reason that we know that good water bodies that the set holsters put out, the key line, and also the permaculture way of harvesting, keeping water on your land without going and damming something or taking... Is that the reason why we can't get consensus with government on yeah. this stuff? Uh, look, no, I think there's a bigger, bigger problem, Stephen. It's not... An, um, look, politicians are voted by the status quo to protect the status quo, right? On three-year terms. So... They're in no position to look at something beyond that because, uh, yeah, they just externalise the consequences, put that onto the environment, to our children's future, you know, uh, or the taxpayer, you know. Uh, they're always a, there's a patsy anyway. And the point is that, you know, they just externalise it because in, in my two-year election cycle, I can't win. It's, it's too speculative, right? It's too down the track. So there's nothing vindictive, it's just self-interest, right? And so innovation can only come from the grassroots doing it, and you're here, that's why you're here, this is the innovators, but now you've got to basically say, look, we've also got to get to critical mass. We've got the ideas, the solutions are there, nature's given us all these solutions, but basically how do we get them to a critical mass where they're a viable proposition, right? And so then, as we said with Lockheed, we've got to say, here's a business model. Yeah, but to do that, yeah, you've got to have a community, I mean, East Timor, for example, where to say, here's a lot of villagers, how do I give them power? And, and for them, hey, because they don't have a Western power already there to, you know, run up, keep a monopoly intact, they may be interested. But so you've got to go, you don't have to fight them, but you just bypass them, right? So you basically have to just go around them and do it, succeed in it, and then they basically want to buy your shares anyway. You know, the information. Do we have a book? <laughs> yeah, look, um, no, no, look, it's always a problem. And, and see, that's the other thing. No, no, but it is important because um, it's our dialogue and our problem solving and our talent making for a particular situation. There's no prescription, right? There's been plenty of books 
but then it always comes down to, oh, here is the, I'm, I'm doing my permaculture design. It says here on page 53, I've got to do these things. And that becomes prescriptive. And then that's, you know, it's, it's dangerous. But yeah, look, no, we, we have lots of um, websites and books and talks and stuff like that on this. Really, it depends what particular area. I mean, we're all here representing that, you know, whether it's sort of holistic management or permaculture or iFoam or whatever. There's this enormous depth of knowledge. And I suppose what we're really trying to say is, okay, there's all the knowledge base we can draw on, and nerds like me. And then you say, okay, really the issue, the front line though is you. What are your particular situations and how do we bring that knowledge to problem solve, excite, and empower that solution? Okay, so it's not me writing about things. It's actually the interaction of working with people to excite and solve problems, right? Is that cool? Not really, no. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, look, the young lady's got... Hey, she's got I actually think I have a simpler answer for you than Walter just gave. In, in terms of digesting much of what he's been saying today, if you look up the interview from last year Walter did with Acus magazine, so just Google Walter Yanni Acus, yeah. and you'll find a lot of what he spoke about today, yeah. where you can spend an hour re-reading it. Yeah. Well, look, if you, yeah, if you Google my name, and I don't want my name up there, but... <laughs> No, but yeah, if you Google my name, then there's a whole lot of things. I mean, okay, on this whole climate cooling, you know, safely, naturally cooling the climate. We gave talks at Harvard University, you know, like et cetera, et cetera. You know, long lectures and inquisitation. What are they they called? Well, anyway, you know, it was like, here's all the evidence and let's have the interrogation, right? So, yeah, there's basically, yes, naturally, safely cooling the planet, right? So there's talks on that. Rehydrating, you know, arid zones, yes. So if you yeah, go into that and you'll see various links to then different areas, but all the time um, it's the audience, it's the need, it's a particular thing. See, for example, you know, we asked the question about, okay, how do we create oases? And it's not a prescription, it's a case of, you know, how, how crook are you? <laughs> what do you need? And then how do we design, some, I mean, we're just using tools, how do we put those together to problem solve in your situation? Our uh, initiatives are being continually crushed by government regulation. Yep, and this comes to Stephen's question and the answer is no, you are only crushed if you even take notice of them. Don't get me wrong, I'm not telling you to break regulation, but I mean, no, you just just do it, just do it, right? Work with your people to say, right, no, no, this is a pioneer plant, it's not a weed. It's a jackhammer plant that's breaking up degraded soils and redoing that. And even if you, I mean, I've written laws and stuff like that. See, even the law, I mean, they don't say you can't grow that plant. You say this plant has a risk of spreading, you have to avoid the spread. And if you eat it before it puts seeds on, or you eat the seeds, then it's not spreading it, right? You see, so, so what I'm getting at is just, there's, there's always solution. There's always solution. You're smarter than they are, so don't, don't put it down. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I have a question just 
a little bit of a different lane. Um, the vegetables, a lot of the vegetables we grow are annuals. Yep. Um, and we're a lot of talk generally about fungal hyphae. Yep. The structure of that through tilling. Yep. Um, generally, when I think about vegetables, they're often from disturbed system. Yep, 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 yep. So my question is how much do those plants of disturbed systems rely on fungal hyphae? Yep. No, good, good point. And so look, it depends again what you're growing. This is exactly the point I'm saying, horses for course. Now if you're growing annuals, you know, short-term annuals, again, most of them were those opportunistic initial pioneers, right? And if I'm doing that, yes, um, yeah, you know, you keep on doing that. Uh, as we said yesterday with Andy, if you don't cultivate that soil, you've got all that root mass, you've got that soil structure, you've got those fungal hyphae there. So it keeps the grass in the wheel tracks, and that's keeping root exudates to keep all that stuff alive. And so he's putting seedlings in there, and very quickly they can become mycorrhizal infected, and then they keep on going. But of course others, you know, the cruciferia and stuff like that aren't using that, they don't need it. But it depends. So if you're growing very short annuals, yeah, then you are back to that hydroponic. You know, you're basically saying, look, I can grow these hydroponically effectively and I'm really adding nutrients. I've got this soil physical matrix, but I'm not relying on those soil nutrients and what have you. The minute you say I'm relying on those soil nutrients, and that resilience and that long-term thing, yeah, then you can't avoid, I mean, the fungi beat you every time. You can, you've got to go with them, you can't fight them, right? Okay, because, okay, this is important with biofertility. I mean, we weren't going to go into so much in detail, but 90% of the biofertility of soil has got nothing to do with its nutrient content or how many nutrients you put on it's all about the availability of the nutrients in that soil, right? Are those nutrients available to the plant? Okay, there's plenty of soils with heaps of phosphorus and whatever, but it's unavailable, it's locked up, iron, aluminium oxide, and, you know, plants are phosphorus deficient. And the availability is all about the fixation, solubilization, access, uptake, cycling of those nutrients. They are all microbially driven processes, right? So you've got to be friendly with those fungi, you've got to be friendly with those bugs, right? Because if you've got them on your side, you've got 90% of that biofertility. All the fertility, stardust, 4.6 billion years ago, you know, there's a periodic table from the star coalesced to make the planets. It's still there, it's just a question, is it available or not available? Or is it toxic or not a toxic? And all that depends on these micro, that microbial interface, right? Um, I'll, I'll talk, I mean, have we got... Uh, 15 minutes. Oh, yeah, look, this is, this is, okay. We'll, we'll put this, because in this context, actually, this is probably the most significant thing I could say, but I'm always reluctant to say it. <laughs> right. Um... No, but this is really the profound thing that we're facing in terms of feeding the 10 billion and that $30 trillion disease industry, right? We've basically got nature 
and we've got industrial agriculture. Right? And we've drawn a plant and we've divided it really, you know, in the half. And so, yeah, plants haven't changed. But basically, these guys here, they lived on these 25,000 kilometres. And of course, not every soil has got 25,000. That's up to, you know, like, I mean... <coughs> yeah. But basically, it was this interface, this interface between the soil and the roots that really drove, you know, the resilience, the nutrition, the whole health of these natural systems, right? And your annual plants are in this game, right? Because they are just pioneer, short-term opportunists living in that thing. And they are actually working effectively hydroponically, right? Okay, so they're working hard, and they're really relying on their nutrient uptake on what's in the soil solution. Okay, so that's why we add soluble fertilizer to keep them growing. <coughs> and of course, the soil solution, by definition, these are soluble ions, right? So that's your, you know, your potassium, your sulfates, your nitrates, your hydrogen phosphates. Right? So these are all the soluble nutrients, <coughs> mostly negative charged, right? And so, yeah, you don't need soil, you don't need fungi, you can just live off that thing. But please understand that you are ending up with these soluble, saturated nutrients. You, I, everything living, we don't have the full answer to this microphone, we don't have the full answer to this, but basically we need 50-plus essential nutrients from stardust to be part of our biochemistry, right? And most of those nutrients we only need are trace elements, parts per billion. But they're fundamental because if we don't have that element, we don't have that enzyme. If we don't have that enzyme, we don't have that function. If we don't have that function, we're dead. Okay, if we don't have selenium, we don't have perioxidases, if we don't have perioxidases, we can't kill these cancer cells, bang, cancer. You know, it's that, that ruthless. And so most of the nutrients that we need are actually these cations, you know, whether it's copper, selenium, you know, magnesium, I mean, all, and these are all positively charged and they're not available in the soil solution because mostly they're absorbed onto organic matter or clay which has got negative charges on them, right? Okay, and so your hydroponically grown plant generally doesn't have the nutritional integrity for health. Okay, because it's missing out on most of these essential nutrients, particularly those trace elements, right? And so, yeah, we can grow weight, you can grow water, we can grow soft, nitrate-loaded, you know, plants, and we can sell them because they look green and all that sort of stuff, but it hasn't got the nutritional integrity. And the nutritional integrity is all about preventative health because we need those nutrients, as we, as we said, for, you know, that fundamental health. And so for the last 160, 70 years since 
Justin Liebig, we've gone into this mode of agriculture big time. And all our science has looked at root ecologies and root nutrient uptake on excised roots just looking at this space. We have completely disregarded what nature does because we can't you know, do these experiments as easily because you know, if we want to look at yeah, nutrient saturation uptake, it's just with excised roots in basically you know, simple reductive systems. So that's, in a sense, the pattern that we're in. But nature's, of course, in a completely different world. Now, if I expand one of these mycorrhizal hyphae up, there was a lady who was interested in microscopes, right. So if we expand this up in microscopes, Monica, isn't it? Yeah, yeah Monica, see, into microscopes. Monica, microscopes, yeah, that's good. <laughs> and, and we look at a fungal hyphae, and now this is basically, this is, just say, 15 microns, and microns are millions of a metre, right? So we're looking at a fungal hyphae in the microscope, and this is just a membrane, right? This is a phospholipid membrane, and it's got iron channels, right? It's got little, little portholes, iron channels through it. And what's happening is these fungi are actually growing all over the surfaces of minerals and particles in soil. So these are the sand grain or whatever. And they're actually actively, selectively, intelligently absorbing the nutrients they need. Okay? They're not absorbing nutrients from the soil solution. They are actually out there hunting. And they're taking their selenium and their cobalt and their copper, selectively, intelligently, according to their needs. And remember I said these fungi, are nothing is closer to us biochemically than these fungi. They are effectively our great-great-grandmothers. Okay? No, really, biochemically, there's no life form is closer. It's scary because we did all this phylogeny, you know, this family tree of life, and because we are to re-analyze it now on DNA and stuff like that, and that's, so that struck out, hey, these fungi are animals. And they're selectively taking these nutrients up and, of course, transporting that into, your, into the plant. And so these plants have a completely different nutritional integrity. They have a completely different nutritional integrity to these plants. And that nutritional integrity is fundamental to that $30 trillion disease industry. Okay? Because it's a lack of that nutritional integrity, Lance Pauling again, 90% of you know, health, preventative health relates to nutrition. Our Greeks again, you know? Let food be thy medicine. Okay? And so we have created a completely different basis of nutrient uptake for the last 100 years in our industrial agriculture. And in the last hundred years, we've had an exponential explosion of self-induced diet-related diseases. Cancers, heart attacks, you know, chronic diseases, autoimmune diseases, etc., etc. Because we are taking in not just these things, but we're taking in the cadmium, the lead, the aluminium, all those 
soluble nutrients or nutrients that become soluble, but once they're in the soil solution, these plants are just taking them up as if they were straws. Okay, there's no discrimination. There's no selective intelligent membrane interface governing what is going into these plants. Okay? So you are actually basically taking the soup. Donald Trump, remember draining the swamp? You're taking the swamp into your plants and having it for lunch. Whereas here you've got this quality control system, those 25,000 kilometers of intelligent membrane interfaces. And of course, this is the fundamental thing. If you go in the US, for example, now, you know, the USDA has taken over the organics label. Organics is now basically being, oh, industrial hydroponics are being sold as organic because, hey, they don't use fertilizer, they use nutrients. And they don't, <coughs> yeah, yeah, come on. But anyway, the point is that, so the whole organics thing is being compromised by this. And of course, this is the cardinal thing. If, if, we, don't, if we don't focus on this, we're cactus, health-wise. But also, that is the point of differentiation of your product in the marketplace. Because if you guys are growing healthy, organic, and healthy, naturally grown food, you are growing food with integrity, nutritional integrity. And that is everything. But you guys have to step up and sort of express this narrative, differentiate yourself. So, yeah. Um, at the farm I work on, we grow cover crops and then till that into the soil. Um, how quickly do those fungal pathways regenerate like after that disturbance? Okay, again, very important question, and I don't have a, a stock answer because it depends where you are, what you've done, and how you do it. But we saw from Andy yesterday that, yeah, within a matter of years, two, three years, he's able to really totally rebuild a healthy soil system. Okay, so there, they work in the space of months, but then again, it's progressive. It's, you know, like step up, step up, step up. So, but basically, in most situations, yeah, I mean, I'd like to see what you're doing, talk with you, listen to you, listen to the soil, and then say, yeah, can we do this and this and this, but certainly within months to a couple of years, rebuild those systems. I was wondering, you know, like in an annual market garden context, um, you know, how easy is it for the how easy and accessible is it to... Is it to test the mycorrhizae? Oh, okay, to test the mycorrhizae. Yeah, okay, yeah, look, if, yeah, if you... At all different levels, yeah, if you want to test it, I've got exquisitely simple, efficient bioassays to say, yep, you've got the mycorrhizae, but actually we were looking at yesterday, you see, we went to see Andy's plants, and we've got this row of plants all really smiling at us, you know, saying, hey, look at me. And of course, the plant is your bioassay, right? Don't worry about the soil, you know, because as we say, like, the soil could be chock-a-block with stuff, but it's what this intelligent membrane. So no, use that plant as your bioassay. Again, coming back to the Greeks, Costas and stuff. Let food be thy medicine. Read that plant, and then you can read actually where you're at. But yeah, look again, what's, what do you need to know? 
uh, and we'll be able to say, yeah, look, this is peripheral stuff. You can spend thousands of dollars on it, but it's not really important. These are the key performance measures. And yes, we can often get that from those very simple bioassays. Let the plant tell us that story. Yeah. Um, you mentioned glomalin and yes. root exudates having long, long life forms. Yep. Um, I guess, and, and it, it links into as well with microbial fungi. Yep. It's all yeah. Yeah. But um, and I don't want to be a pessimist, but why are so many scientists, um, particularly ones who have been involved in things like the SCAR report? Yeah, yeah. Why are they so hesitant to talk about the? <laughs> They're my friends in Sarah. Um, <laughs> But look, um, yeah, no, I know, I know. Okay, but, but you're going to send Stephen asked the same question. But let's just talk about glomalin first. Look, glomalin is look. You've got 25,000 kilometres of fungal hyphae proliferating throughout the soil. They 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 do all this very intelligent, smart stuff because they're your great great grandmother looking after your health, right? And of course they don't. <coughs> so they don't stick around because six hours later. They've withdrawn the cytoplasm from this tube and they're out there colonising the next one, right? And what they leave behind is this fungal cell wall, which then breaks... And the fungi are made out of chitin, glucosamine, and so you end up with this detritus of this fungal cell wall, glucosamine, which breaks down to make glomalin, right? So glomalin is simply the... Yeah, the detritus, the residual detritus of this mycorrhizal network throughout the soil. I mean, glomalin was, I mean, an American lady wrote a paper and put a name to it and put a name on the name, but that's America, right? But the point is that, but no, no, we've known about these polysaccharides in soil, I mean, Syro back in the 70s. Yeah, of course, we know all about it. The point is that, uh, yeah, we're there. Why in Jeff and the SCARP report and stuff like that, now look, we, we as bureaucrats, and I've worked there too, bureaucrats, we're very, very smart. The way we write the brief, right, uh, can actually set the result. Now, Cabinet, and uh, we're involved, basically Cabinet, Kevin Rudd, in the early days, it was to work with innovative, regenerative farmers to explore the potential of soil carbon for Australia's agriculture future. That's a very good Cabinet direction. But then somehow it got turned around to say, can you do some baseline measurements of what our current soil carbon level is in case the bureaucrats wanted to do an appropriate carbon accounting from the farmers to offset our national emissions? So Jeff, or Scarf's brief was to say, can you, on 4,000 samples, set up the baseline reference group? Now, if you're doing, setting up a baseline, you want it low, low, <laughs> right? Because you're getting an increment, which is where your credit, your offset is. So your baseline, you want it as low as possible. So all the innovative farmers were excluded as outliers. As you would, because you're trying to set up a... I mean, no, it's fraud. I mean, I shouldn't say that. But, it's, <laughs> but do you understand? It's misinformation, as the Donald would say, right? And so, so the point is that you've got to understand, Stephen's question, you've got to understand it's not a conspiracy, but it's basically people playing short-term games in their vested self-interest. And that's a reality. We're in a jungle. Come on. There's leeches and there's sort of alligators and there's, you know, all sorts of things. But we don't, 
not enjoy the jungle because of it. <laughs> They've had enough. Let's get that through the game. 